first Bible reading is taken from page 731. It's Isaiah 53, uh, 52, I beg your pardon, and I'm starting at 13 and working down to chapter 53 and then we'll go from 53 down to uh, verse 6. The suffering and the glory of the servant. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations and kings? Will So will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We are like sheep, have gone astray, Each of us turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Thanks be to God. Second reading comes from Matthew chapter 20, beginning at verse 17 to the end of the chapter. It can be found on page 977 of the Bibles. Now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favour of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. 
When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet But they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. Good morning, everyone. My name. Uh, if you don't know me, uh, I usually attend the night service, so it's nice to be here in the morning. I usually say it's nice to be up early, but we have a three-month-old, so I was up at 6.30 this morning. Uh, we're talking about greatness today. Uh, what does it mean for someone to be great? Now, for most people in our world today, greatness seems like something you can earn. Right? There are sportsmen who earn greatness by playing a game well. And they're often compensated very well for that. If we take Floyd Mayweather as an example, he's an American boxer. He's won 50 out of his 50 fights. And he was the highest paid athlete in the world last year, earning $285 million. Some people see greatness in power. A CEO who's worked their way up in a company and now has people working for them. There's often pressure from the society that we live in to see power or money or success as the measure of true greatness. But in our passage today, Jesus has some pretty controversial things to say about greatness. He takes the concept of greatness that we have in our world and turns it on its head. Jesus makes two things about greatness clear in this passage. The first is that greatness is suffering, not avoiding suffering. And greatness is serving, not being served. As we come to this passage today, let's ask God to make his idea of greatness clear to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And Father, we thank you that we have this time together this morning to dive into this passage in Matthew and explore your idea of greatness. And Lord, I pray that you would be at work in our lives, convicting us uh, where we fall short of your ideals of greatness. And Lord, please, by your Holy Spirit, help us to change our lives, to live according to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing we see in our passage today is that greatness is suffering, not avoiding suffering. In this first section, verses 17 to 19, Jesus predicts his death and his resurrection. 
Now, this is the third time Jesus had done this. This is the third time that he's told his disciples that he's going to be killed. In verse 18, we read, The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Now, as I said, this is the third prediction. The first two predictions come in chapters 16 and 17, with Jesus himself saying each time that he will be killed and rise after three days. After the first prediction, Peter is pretty upset, and he pulls Jesus aside and says, surely this will, this will never happen. The second time Jesus makes this prediction, we read that the disciples were filled with grief. It seems like they're so caught up with the prospect that Jesus is going to suffer and be killed that they completely miss the last part about Jesus rising from the dead after three days. And I think the underlying problem here, the reason they seem to not quite grasp what Jesus is saying is the disciples' expectations of greatness. When the Son of Man is talked about in the Old Testament, he's depicted as coming on the clouds of heaven. He's given authority and glory and power. And now Jesus is saying that the Son of Man is going to be condemned. He's going to be mocked and flogged and crucified. This whole image Jesus is painting doesn't seem to gel with the disciples' ideas of greatness. They don't expect that their great leader is someone who is going to suffer. I mean, who would want to, to follow someone who spends their time suffering? I used to see, I don't see them as often these days, but a couple of years ago, I used to get these ads popping up online all the time of people just trying to sell you things. And it would often start with this guy standing in front of a really fancy car saying, I earned $10,000 a week last month. Buy my book and find out how I did it. Or this really fit-looking person saying, this is how I got six-pack abs. You can buy my workout program to look like me. And I, it never, I mean, I never bought any of those products. But they tend to work because people naturally want to follow the example of someone they want to be like, whether that's earning lots of money or looking really fit. I don't think those ads would be effective at all if someone popped up and said, I spent the last three months of my life suffering. Here's what you can do to suffer like me. But Jesus is saying to his disciples, follow me. Follow my example. I am going to suffer and die. And the disciples are having a hard time coming around to this idea. They were blinded to the truth by the presuppositions about the Son of Man and what it means for him to be great. If we look to Jesus for his model of greatness, we can't avoid seeing that greatness is suffering, not avoiding suffering. Reading on in the passage, we can kind of start to imagine what's happening. He's taken the 12 aside. He's told them something that's absolutely groundbreaking. 
and no one quite understands exactly what's going on. There's maybe a little bit of an awkward silence. And then Zebedee's sons, James and John, they come up to Jesus with their mum to ask him something. Now, their mother isn't mentioned by name here in Matthew, but based on different accounts of who was present at the crucifixion, there's a pretty good chance that she is Jesus' aunt, right? So Mary's sister. That would make James and John cousins of Jesus. And if we remember back to the first week of the series in Matthew, which Tom preached on, James and John were also two of the disciples who were present at the transfiguration. Now, none of that is hugely important, but it gives us a bit of insight into the attitudes of the people present here. Maybe James and John thought that they'd earned the right to be higher in the kingdom of heaven by being closer to Jesus than others. Maybe they thought that because they were present at the transfiguration, they were more important than the other disciples. Maybe they thought they'd get just some kind of special treatment because Jesus was their cousin. Well, it is. They're showing some pretty selfish ambition here, attempting to put themselves first in the kingdom of heaven. But greatness is given. It's not earned. Through Jesus' suffering, greatness, as well as our place in the kingdom, is given to us. Now, instead of flat-out turning them down, Jesus asks his own question in return. In verse 22, he asks, Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? He knows that they don't know what they're really asking. Jesus is calling them to follow some pretty radical ideas about greatness, including partaking in his suffering. But our suffering could never achieve what Jesus' suffering did for us. Ultimate greatness and our place in God's kingdom isn't something that we can earn. That's something which is given to us through Jesus' suffering on the cross. And as Christians, and as disciples, we should follow Jesus' example of true greatness on earth. Even though we know that we can never fulfill that standard and that our own greatness is something given to us by Jesus. He has greatness through suffering, not avoiding suffering. And we're able to share in that with him. The other point Jesus makes about greatness is that greatness is serving, not being served. And reading through this passage, trying to imagine the emotions going on, I can't help but be amazed by the patience that Jesus is showing. He's just told his followers that he's going to suffer and die at the hands of religious leaders and that he will rise from the dead. But straight away, two of them come up to him with their own aspirations of greatness. Jesus has told them three times now that he's going to suffer and die. And it sort of seems like they're fine with that, but they still want to be on the world's path to greatness. Jesus has something to say here about greatness. Jesus takes their 
misguided misconception about what greatness is and he corrects it because it's not status or prestige that makes someone great read with me in verse 25 you know that the rulers of the gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them not so with you Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The disciples were expecting that the Son of Man would be a ruler, and we read here that the rulers at the time really took advantage of their power. If someone was a king, you weren't going to mistake them for a commoner on the street. They made it clear that they were rulers. But like so many other expectations the disciples had, Jesus tells them that this is not what greatness in the kingdom of heaven looks like. James and John were aspiring to be great by being seated at the left and right hands of Jesus, the king. But Jesus tells them that to be great, they must be servants. Like we heard from Sam last week, if you really want to be first, you must be last. Verse 27, if we want to be first, we need to be slaves. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven isn't going to be measured in how many people you had underneath you, how many people you were able to boss around. True greatness is measured in service. The Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve. And his ultimate act of service was giving his life as a ransom for many. Philippians 2 highlights Jesus' incredible descent from being divinely exalted in heaven to becoming a servant of the world. Up on the screen, starting at verse 6, Philippians 2 reads, Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is calling his disciples to lower themselves, to become servants. And he leads by example. Jesus is by very nature God. But instead of using his own divinity to his advantage to gain power and wealth on earth, he made himself a servant. Jesus' ultimate act of service was on the cross, dying in the most humiliating way imaginable. And his death is an atoning sacrifice for our sin, which clearly shows God's love for all of us. In Romans 5 verse 8 we read, And God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The giving of Jesus' life as a ransom for many 
not only assures us of salvation through our faith in him, but assures us of the incomprehensible love of God. The final section of this chapter links pretty closely with the story about James and John that comes before it. In verse 30, we have two beggars who are sitting beside the road calling out to Jesus, who they recognize as the king, the son of David. But the crowds are telling them to be quiet, thinking they aren't worth Jesus' time or attention. And the previous section, we had these two disciples coming to make a request. And now on the side of the road, we have two blind beggars calling out to Jesus, the king. We had a crowd of ten other disciples who were pretty unhappy that this request had been made. And now we have a crowd of people telling these blind men to be quiet, expecting that they wouldn't be worth Jesus' time. Jesus asked his disciples, what do you want? And despite the crowd's expectations, Jesus stops and asks these blind men, what do you want me to do for you? He stops for these men. He demonstrates the service he's called all of his followers to in the previous section by doing this. But the two requests that are made are the biggest points of difference in these two stories. These stories have been deliberately put together here. Matthew is trying to move our interpretation of this passage in a specific direction. And I think this is what he wants us to think about. How refreshing would it have been if the two disciples who had been following Jesus for years at this point, listening to his teachings, if they had requested the same thing as the blind man, if they had asked, Lord, open our eyes, we want to see Jesus had compassion on these blind men when they asked for their physical sight. And after receiving their sight, they followed him. How much more would he have had compassion on these two disciples, probably his own cousins, who had faithfully followed him for years, and yet still they had the humility to ask that Jesus would open their eyes to the truth. The disciples want to share in Jesus' greatness. But they're blinded to the fact that the path to greatness is through suffering and service. Jesus stopping to heal the blind men is an example of serving those who everyone wants to ignore. Jesus himself demonstrates that greatness is found in serving, not being served. He gives us a practical example of how to apply what he's just told the disciples. Like Jesus, we should be striving to serve as much as we can. If we want to be great, Jesus tells us that we shouldn't be looking for power or wealth. Verse 26 tells us we should become servants. If we want to be first, verse 27 says we must be slaves. 
Serving comes in many forms. My wife, Jordan, and I were trying to work out our love languages a little while ago. And we worked out that the way I show love is through acts of service. And so the way that often works out at home is I look for ways to serve Jordan through the day. I make her a cup of tea, or I try and anticipate her needs if she's taking care of Harvey. It turns out that Jordan actually prefers to receive love through words of affirmation. So before we made a point of working this out, she complained that I didn't tell her what I loved about her enough. I think for me, and I think for many people, it's often easy to serve the people you love, the people you enjoy being around. But Jesus stopping to serve the blind man forces us to expand our scope of service. To really serve as Jesus did, we need to look to serve the people who we find hard to love, people we find harder to be around. It might be a difficult relative. It might be a work colleague. It might be someone on the street, like we read here in our passage. Greatness, as Jesus demonstrates in this passage, as well as in the rest of his life and ministry, is found in suffering, not avoiding suffering, and is found in serving, not being served. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, for his life and ministry. Lord, we thank you that he not only came to earth and taught us what it means to be great, but demonstrated that in his own life. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we would be able to see the truth of what greatness is and how to live that out every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.